Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about, I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships can evolve with people evolve as they grow and change? The issues of abortion also affect sexually active men, for example, who want, also want sexual freedom for themselves and their partners. Welcome to the Curious Fox podcast for those challenging the status quo in love, sex, and relationships. My name is Effie Blue. And I'm Jacqueline Mislow. And today we're talking about the very real risk to gay marriage, the fact that non-monogamy is not protected under the law, and the steps that we can take to protect our rights. On June 24th, 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, which affirmed the constitutional right to abortion. In addition to stripping away bodily autonomy from those who can get pregnant, it also threatened other U.S. rights, such as the right to contraception and the rights for same-sex couples to marry. Let's take a few minutes to connect the dots between the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade and gay marriage. So, in 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the Constitution of the United States conferred the right to have an abortion. There are two constitutional provisions that the court relied on to rule in Roe v. Wade the Ninth Amendment, and the Fourteenth Amendment. The Ninth Amendment was a part of the Bill of Rights that was added to the U.S. Constitution in 1791. The amendment says that unenumerated rights are those protected under the Constitution, even if it's not explicitly mentioned in the document. That means that the rights of people are not limited just to the rights that are listed in the Constitution. Essentially, the default is that we have all the rights, unless we're told we don't have the right, rather than the other way around, which would be that we only have the rights that the Constitution tells us we do. The 14th Amendment of the Constitution was ratified in 1868 and, amongst other things, guaranteed all citizens equal protection under the laws. In addition, one of the clauses in the amendment, the Due Process Clause, prohibits state and local governments from depriving people of life, liberty, or property without fair procedure which has since been used to uphold a citizen's right to privacy. So, if one U.S. citizen gets a right, then every U.S. citizen gets the same right, regardless of who they are. There are four other cases that also relied on the Ninth and Fourteenth Amendments. First, Griswold v. Connecticut in 1965, which bars states from interfering with married couples' right to buy and use contraceptives. So, the Ninth and the Fourteenth are a combo deal. The Ninth argues that just because married couples have the right to buy contraception, that doesn't mean unmarried couples don't have the right. And under the 14th, it was argued that, in fact, because married couples get the right, now we all get the right. The second case to use the Ninth and 14th Amendments were Loving v. Virginia in 1967, which legalized interracial marriage. Just like the previous case, the Ninth, same-sex couples have the right to marry, but that does not mean only they get to marry. And the 14th says, same-race couples get to marry, so we all get to marry. The third case was Lawrence v. Texas in 2003, which struck down sodomy laws criminalizing same-sex intimacy. And fourth was Obergefell v. Hodgins in 2015, which legalized gay marriage. You know what I'm going to say. 
Just because one group gets it, it doesn't mean the other doesn't. And because they get it, we all get it. You get it. The willingness of the court to overturn the precedent set by Roe v. Wade means that they can also overturn the other four cases that utilize the Ninth and Fourteenth Amendments. In fact, Supreme Court Associate Justice Clarence Thomas wrote that he believes that the court should reconsider three of the four other landmark cases. Interestingly, the fourth ruling that Justice Thomas did not include is the ruling on interracial marriage, which I imagine is the case because his white wife might have something to say about that. So the ruling that applies to him is fine, but the ones that do not should be overturned. And finally, this means that federal protection of rights previously ruled as protected by the Ninth and Fourteenth Amendments could instead be rolled back, leaving it to individual states to decide on behalf of those who live in that state. This opens the door to introduce, or I guess reintroduce, unfortunately, the discrimination, segregation, and inequality that is happening in our society in the name of religion into law. To dig into all of this and discuss concrete steps that we can take to protect our rights, we knew exactly who to reach out to. I'm Diana Adams, and I am a lawyer and activist for LGBTQ and non-nuclear families. I started a law firm in 2007 in New York supporting those kinds of families, and now I also have a nonprofit for low-income families and legislative advocacy, Chosen Family Law Center. Diana has spoken at our annual conference, Consider This, and facilitated a workshop for us on how to set up your non-traditional family for success, which is available to Patreon members via our Patreon page. In addition to the Chosen Family Law Center, Diana has a boutique LGBTQ family law and mediation firm, which my wife and I actually used when we were getting married. Both organizations serve primarily same-sex couples and non-nuclear families, as Diana is dedicated to supporting same-sex couples, platonic co-parents, polyamorous families, and different sex couples. Diana is a leader in the legal support of LGBTQ families and is one of New York State representatives for the LGBT Family Law Institute of the National LGBT Bar Association. Diana is always hard at work, so we started with asking her to catch us up on what she's been up to recently. I've had a really exciting year. My TED Talk on non-nuclear families came out early winter. And I think that that was a really incredible opportunity to bring my ideas to an even broader platform and really brought together the linkages between what single people have in common with polyamorous people and same-sex couples in that we're all doing something different than heterosexual monogamous marriage and that we need to be aware that we're allies in trying to support each other's rights beyond marriage and in creating family beyond marriage. And so as part of doing that TED Talk, that meant that I also had to have a really rigorously fact-checked set of data. And now I have that data in my head. And I think also people recognize that when you're giving a TED Talk that you really have to be really fact-checked in what you're saying. And that has really, I think, helped these ideas to get even more respect. And part of that has been going to present to the Biden administration about LGBTQ public health. And particularly, I am a bisexual person, by which I mean that in a trans-inclusive way, to mean basically the same as pansexual, but whichever term people prefer. And on behalf of that community, the bisexual pansexual community is actually the largest chunk of the LGBTQ community, even though many of us, bi folks and pan folks, don't feel like we should be have the right to take up any space in LGBTQ spaces. There's also a misconception about bisexual, pansexual people that we have it easier than gay and lesbian people. So maybe we shouldn't speak at meetings. Maybe we shouldn't be in leadership. Maybe we should don't deserve to be here. 
-hmm. And actually, although there are some tremendous ways that we have privilege, you know, I am a partner to a um, cis man. And that means, although I'm gender non-binary, I can pass as femme when I need to. And so I have been able to travel to places in the world that would not be safe for me if I was in a same-sex couple or if I was more visibly trans. And I recognize that as a privilege. At the same time, it's useful to note that bisexual, pansexual people have the worst public health outcomes right behind trans people in our community, much worse than gay and lesbian folks, much more likely to experience family rejection, Mm. much more likely to experience domestic violence, um, which sometimes is breaking up with a man for a woman. And then the man goes after his ex-girlfriend for that being rejected by family, maybe because, you know, if you're gay or lesbian, it's like, well, you can't help it. But if you're bi, you're just doing this to, you know, break your mother's heart or something. So anyway, there's lots and lots of issues in bisexual public health. And I'm really passionate about that and was able to go for celebrate bisexuality week to present to the Biden administration about some of those public health disparate outcomes um, the ways that the MPV vaccine, formerly called monkeypox, should have been rolled out differently to include women who are partnered to by men, because the vast majority of men who have sex with men also have sex with women. Mm. And so when we make when we say this is where this is where it's spreading and it spreads through semen and mucous membranes and we only make it eligible for men, we're not realizing the demographic reality of the way people are living. And I think that's really important that we actually think about the fact that we don't necessarily fit into neat binaries. There are lots and lots of people who are in family configurations that are more diverse than nuclear. And also many people who are bisexual, pansexual, um, who aren't fitting into our, our, our images of what we think of as LGBTQ people. So I've been passionate about that and advocating for that kind of public health policy and bringing home some of that work with the Department of Health and Human Services with my nonprofit Chosen Family Law Center in New York to, for example, create resources to welcome um, LGBTQ refugees who are coming from the southern border, um, as well as coordinate with the New York City Public Health Department about ways that they could be more inclusive for the reality of LGBTQ populations. So I'm really passionate about doing that kind of work and also have been really involved in expanding the nonprofit Chosen Family Law Center. And we take clients throughout New York State who are um, low-income LGBTQ and polyamorous people and people doing platonic co-parenting. And we're the only place where you could get for free a polyamorous co-parenting agreement or polyamorous cohabitation agreement about how you want to share your finances. It's not just a document, but a facilitated discussion and process by a trained mediator and services that support not just same-sex couples, but the whole range of other kinds of ways people are creating family beyond a romantic pairing of two. So we do platonic co-parenting agreements. We do sperm donor agreements and help really navigate what that will look like, as well as supporting low-income trans people and asylees who are getting a green card uh, on the basis of LGBTQ persecution. So that's the kind of work that we're doing with Chosen Family Law Center. And now we're also expanding some of our legislative work. We've been doing multi-partner domestic partnerships, which have passed in three cities in Massachusetts. So now for the first time in the U.S., you can actually get a domestic partnership with more than one person. You can actually even be married to one person and domestic partners with a different person in the V triad. Mm -hmm. And that's the first time you've been able to do that. And then be able to come home and maybe say, my husband does not mean my health insurance, but my girlfriend does. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to have residency. So you can come from someplace else in the U.S., and also just have that as something that stabilizes polyamorous relationships. So we're excited about that. And now we're hoping to pass that in more places. We're looking at places like Seattle um, and the Bay Area and also trying to pass non-discrimination protections, both within corporations for their employees, but also at a city level so that somebody couldn't be denied housing or discriminated against in employment 
um, or have it used against them in other ways that they may be polyamorous or in other kinds of non-nuclear family structures. Because mm-hmm. folks may not know that, that, that polyamory is not a protected class. Polyamory is not a protected class. And that's something that's been really challenging and sad for me for the past 15 years that I've had my firm doing advocacy work and legal work for polyamorous families. People will call me regularly once a month for 15 years and say, I can't believe it, but I just was told that I can't, I marched in the, this really happened. I, somebody marched in the polyamory contingent of the New York city pride parade, live in New York city as a queer person with a tremendous amount of privilege, working for a big corporation, making a great salary. And were brought into HR the Monday after pride because their picture was in the paper for being in the polyamory section of the parade. And we're told, don't ever do that again. Take down any of your profiles that mention that you're polyamorous. And they call me and say, they can't do that, right? They can. Because being in a polyamorous relationship or any kind of other relationship structure is not a protected class. And so that's also something that's really important for us to realize. And this kind of thing happens all the time. Um, Another person was told they were a professor and after class were playing a song on guitar in the music class that they were teaching to college students. And the song was about polyamory and a very tame, non-sexual way. And one of the students reported that she felt uncomfortable and harassed because he mentioned that he was polyamorous in the song and reprimanded. Other people have been, you know, had their jobs transferred just because they had a picture of two partners on their desk and that family picture made somebody uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. So these things are happening all the time and people don't realize, even people who have a lot of privilege, even people who live in leftist blue dot cities, we need to recognize that and it's time that, that we actually change that. Yeah. So what is the status of legally recognizing non-traditional family structures within the United States and abroad? Um, I just moved back from Germany and was quite involved with helping coordinate LGBTQ lawyers across Europe. And at this point, as alarming as it is to say, LGBTQ people have some of the most expansive rights here as they do anywhere else in the world. And we have one of the most developed polyamorous communities, as well as movements for same-sex couples and for trans people. And while it may feel really under fire in the U.S., and it is, just imagine that it's worse just about everywhere else, which is horrifying. So I'd say that this movement is much further along in the U.S. in terms of family recognition. And that's partly because we don't really have a social welfare state to speak of. And in places like Europe, families haven't had to push. Same-sex couples haven't pushed as hard for same-sex marriage because there it was not thought of as essential as a way to get health insurance, for example, or tax benefits. That was one of the biggest pushes behind the same-sex marriage movement was actually making sure that people weren't missing out on all of these tremendous benefits that you get from marriage because we really privatize dependency within marriage and have all these incentives to get married. That does not necessarily exist in Europe or in Scandinavia where, you know, if you get, if a woman gets pregnant, she doesn't necessarily have to chase the man for child support because the state will support her if she needs support as a mother, because we value that. And, but there isn't as much of an emphasis on finding a partner. So for many, many of those reasons and other cultural reasons, the movement for same-sex marriage was much, much more intensive and earlier than in Europe and had been much more of a fight that also I think was tied into seeing the beauty of these of the gay community with um, the horrible AIDS crisis and just how much you know humanity was revealed and how so many people were outed by having to come out and, and explain that they had AIDS. And so people realized we all know somebody who is LGBTQ. We all know somebody that's gay. We all, this, is, this is in all of our communities. This is people that we love. And so that really propelled the movement forward and then combined with the need for the, the legal rights of marriage. So at, at this point in the U.S., 
it's unfortunate because while we're taking giant steps forward toward multi-partner recognition at city levels, for example, within Massachusetts and potentially in other progressive cities, we're moving toward the recognition of polyamorous triads and quads. Um, and also with domestic partnership, I think it's a really powerful uh, state registration because it doesn't come with everything that marriage comes with. And I think that's a good thing because marriage is a Christian sacrament. And I think we really need to get away from having our legal designation mean something that is spiritual and religious for certain people because domestic partnership doesn't have that meaning and it is much more flexible and open. It does not necessarily mean that you're in love. It doesn't mean that you're lovers. Domestic partnership, when it first passed for same-sex couples, was thought of as, okay, for same-sex couples that can't get married. And many, many cities around the country drafted basic laws about it that may have been really broad. And what they were surprised by was that it wasn't just same-sex couples registering. It was also two single moms who are best friends. Sometimes it was two sisters where I want to get my sister on my health insurance because she's my family person. Um, sometimes it was best friends who were doing platonic co-parenting. Uh, it could be me and my long-term gay friend who are co-parenting or living together and are not creating our relationship based on romance, but based on long-term friendship and maybe co-parenting or sharing finances. There was elderly widows who were in a golden girls configuration that wanted to come register together. So Domestic partnership had a lot of creativity and a lot of openness for just what kind of diverse, beautiful families are out there. And I think that helped us realize in the family policy world, there were a lot of other people that would like to be registered as, as legal special people to each other that were not necessarily romantic partners. And so I think we need to keep that creativity and that expansiveness with domestic partnership that doesn't have all of these other romantic meanings. And so that's also something powerful as we see this movement, not just for multi-partner domestic partnerships, but the domestic partnership laws that we're writing could also be for two people who are platonic, or it could be for three best friends who are all living together. It could be for, you know, you, you get divorced, you know, or you have a co-parent and then you have another romantic partner, but you still want your co-parent or your ex to be on your health insurance, or you're still sharing a child together. So it makes sense to have all of your family lives combined. So there's a lot of creativity there. So we're seeing a push forward in these progressive cities with these multi-partner domestic partnerships and more greater recognition of family structures, including polyamory and non-nuclear families, while at the same time having this terrible step backward in a lot of places where we're at risk of losing same-sex marriage. So following the overruling of Roe v. Wade in the U.S., there is talk of the Supreme Court challenging same-sex marriages. How likely is that? And if likely, what are the signs to look for and what can we do to protect this privilege? Where we're at with that right now is that in the Dobbs decision, where we were overruling Roe v. Wade, unfortunately, with the Supreme Court, that was also questioning the, the fundamental footing that Roe v. Wade was standing on was about this idea of substantive due process, which is really the right to our freedom and bodily autonomy and was kind of extended in a really beautiful philosophical way from due process, but was not necessarily articulated specifically in the Constitution. And there was a whole line of cases that had that kind of thinking that also related to Griswold v. Connecticut, which was about your right to make decisions about birth control, which was really essential for women's reproductive freedom and health and everyone's reproductive freedom and health. And then also cases related to um, same-sex marriage that also came into this right to privacy, right to privacy and bodily autonomy were sort of all netted in with the substantive due process ideas. So 
with that, that means that's the underpinning of our same-sex marriage laws. And we really might lose same-sex marriage in the US. But what that means right now, there is a there is a bill that's the Respect for Marriage Act. And what that would do, it, it's not an exciting, expansive bill, but there's a push right now while we have Democratic control of the Senate. Thank God. I've cried about that this weekend. I'm so relieved. That would be basically to fully overrule the Defense of Marriage Act. So we're not just relying on the Supreme Court. Because what happened was that the case, E.D. Windsor um, had, a, had the Supreme Court case in which she had, um, her, her wife had died and she was married and living in New York City and had this beautiful, long relationship. And they were an affluent couple. She was going to get a tremendous amount of funds from her wife at the time of death. If they're legally married, that is a tax-free transfer. Because they weren't, it was going to be over $300,000 in federal taxes. So this case was about how that's just fundamentally unfair for the federal government to do that. So that was a case saying that the federal government has to recognize state marriages. So New York State recognizes her marriage. The federal government doesn't. Mm -hmm. So that was causing this big tax burden on her. So basically, that overruled a section that that case took away part of the Defense of Marriage Act, which was the federal bill that was saying that the, the, basically the federal government doesn't have to respect state same-sex marriages. So if Windsor gets removed, that Defense of Marriage Act could come back. So the Respect for Marriage Act is something that's a very simple bill. It doesn't have everything in it that we would want, but it's one that may be able to pass with bipartisan support and pass more quickly than some other more expansive bills like the Equality Act that we really want ultimately. But the Respect for Marriage Act would just fully overrule the Defense of Marriage Act so that that would mean two things. It would mean that the federal government has to respect state same-sex marriages, no matter what the Supreme Court does. And then number two, that states have to recognize each other's same-sex marriages. So it is quite possible that if our extremist Supreme Court overrules even more precedent and, and takes away same-sex marriage rights federally, that at least we would then have the ability to, for example, if you can't get married in Texas, you could go to California or New York and get married and your state come home and your state would have to respect that other state's marriage. And also your federal government would have to respect your marriage. So for people that live in blue states, their marriage is going to be absolutely fine. We think that existing marriages are not going to get undone. You can't really undo a marriage once you've made that legal legal contract. So it would just be for future same-sex marriages, people might have to go to a different state. So that's a terrible situation to be in. It is fundamentally disrespectful to people's humanity to allow this to be happening and to pretend that religious freedom is a way to overrule people's rights to create family the way they want to. And I'm angry also because I grew up Christian and there's nothing from the teachings of Jesus that would convey this. That's right. I mean, it is not Christianity to me and I'll fight anyone on that. And so I'm just outraged that this is happening, but that is a reality we all need to know. And I think all of us who are doing anything other than monogamous heterosexual marriage need to be especially following this, even if we're not interested in getting into a same-sex marriage. This mm-hmm. relates to all of our freedoms. We all need to be engaged in this. Mm-hmm. E- even the straight married couples, I think we all benefit. If we want freedom to our bodily autonomy, this is how this can get chipped away. So we need to all be pushing for this Respect for Marriage Act, which Chuck Schumer is just proposing this week. So as the podcast comes out a week later, this is something that's going to be a, a present topic that may be getting passed. And then the next level, what we really want, but that may take longer to get past is the Equality Act. And what that would do is it would encode LGBTQ rights within Federal Civil Rights Act. 
So once again, this is meaning that if we lost the employment discrimination, same-sex marriage cases got overruled in the Supreme Court, then basically we would still be able to have that enshrined in the Civil Rights Act and have robust protections because of that. So we're basically trying to replicate what the Supreme Court did with legislation. And one thing I will say in appreciation of the Biden administration is that having been at the Capitol and having presented to federal officials who are working on civil rights issues, it may not seem from the outside in the ways that President Biden is can be very seeming sort of neutral and trying to get along with everybody and bring people together Within the administration, there is a lot of robust effort to try to enshrine as many civil rights laws as possible in case we get a Republican future president that might do something like Trump. And I was really impressed with how intensively they're taking that internally and how there are people working around the clock right now who are working on that and trying Mm -hmm. to make sure, as they told me when I was at the Capitol, that it's not possible to overrule civil rights with the flip of a switch by just overturning a case at the Supreme Court or over mm. undoing one law. You know, mm-hmm. we don't strike down one law or have one case and have people's civil rights go away for women and LGBTQ people. We're going to enshrine that in every single piece of legislation that we can so that, you know, if states want federal funding, it all is related to following the Civil Rights Act laws mm. and having as much robust protection for women and LGBTQ people as possible. So I was really impressed with that. And I, I actually give appreciation for President Biden and as well as what people are doing that I think you can't always see day to day. I actually feel like I see that there's a lot of preparation for what I think we need to be really aware of. I mean, what's happening right now in Iran is absolutely horrific. Living in mm-hmm. Germany, I was around I was around people who talked about their experience. Women in their late 40s have the experience of being a nine-year-old girl in a bikini, older sisters in med school. This is one of my friends in Germany. And then mm-hmm. within a few years, these rights are getting chipped away and women mm. can't go to school anymore. And now we have to cover up and now uh, women can't have bank accounts anymore. And and now we're in a situation where Iran is talking about, you know, doing a mass arrest of 14,000 women who are protesting and that to make sure they don't get into heaven, that they should be raped before they're put yeah. to death. That's what we're talking about in Iran. And that's a place that had a revolution that was basically a fascist takeover and having lived in Germany, that also Germany also experienced a fascist takeover. It was less than 20% of people were actually supporting the Nazi party. This was a minority radical group that took over in Germany as well. And so I think and a lot of people who've experienced that all moved to Germany. And so I think living there and having a more international perspective, I think that sometimes Americans can get overly complacent that something like that could never happen in the US, and it could. And there's been an attempt to have a Christian fascist state takeover. And that's something that I can say on public radio in Germany. And everyone's like, oh yeah, obviously. But when I do policy comment, commentating work for a mainstream media in the U S they're like, maybe don't say Christian fascist takeover. And I'm like, that's what it is, but okay. <laughs> you know, people aren't ready to hear that. That's too radical. But I think that's the reality. And we need to recognize that we all need to be working together to keep our democratic norms, to make sure that all rights of minorities of all kinds are being respected because they may come for them now and they're coming for you next. And particularly Mm -hmm. when it comes to family policy, I think we need to make sure that we realize that the rights of single women to be single, not be treated differently because they're childless, that when people don't get family benefits because they're single, nearly 40% of American adults don't live with a romantic partner. And Mm -hmm. so all of those people are also not getting any of those benefits of marriage. They may not have anybody they can share their health insurance with or could share it with them. And when we set everything up based on a nuclear family, a lot of us lose out. 
you're absolutely right. We do agree that we need to fight for those rights, regardless of who you are. And you might be in the most traditional setup for yourself for now, uh, but you don't know how things are going to going to turn out and we should all stick together and fight for all this all this stuff for just the quality of human life um so how can we advocate for same-sex marriages on a system level i think number one is following along with legislation i'm somebody who posts really frequently in my nonprofit chosen family law center following along with us following along with activists like me about what's going on and then we regularly post alerts about hey there's a bill you need to call your senate senator you need to tell everybody on social media you need to let people know who are in districts and areas where their senator might not support it even if ours will in new york so i think that staying present with what's going on in our political process and the legislation and being willing to follow when there's alerts i think that's incredibly important and staying present for that conversation even if you think i'm not in a same sex marriage it doesn't really impact me it does abortion rights also Anybody that wants to have freedom over their body should be following along with what's going on with abortion rights. Even if you are a man that just wants to have sexual freedom for yourself and for your partners, you need to follow along with what's going on with abortion rights because that impacts you too. So we are all in this together. And I think just staying present for this political moment that's incredibly crucial for our country um, is, is key. And there are a lot of people who are putting the information out and making calls, making fundraising pitches, saying, hey, spread the word. I think there is actually a tremendous power too on things like social media. There's power in being able to follow along and be really connected and hear what's going on from different specific activists like me and, and other groups, but also then to be able to share and share with people who may not be persuaded yet, people who may be on the fence, not necessarily your most conservative relatives who may not change their mind, but there may be very many people that you know who are not necessarily engaged, who don't re realize that the issues of abortion also affect sexually active men, for example, who want also want sexual freedom for themselves and their partners. Other things that people can do to be involved, I think um, getting more involved with activist nonprofits. I'm one of many people that runs a small struggling nonprofit. We're always fundraising. We're always looking for volunteer kind of help. And there are many, many people who are doing that kind of grassroots work. So for example, I'm here in New York City. I'm working actively with local LGBTQ centers, with refugee populations, with low-income trans people, with sex workers, with low-income polyamorous people, low-income LGBTQ people. And there are lots of opportunities to be in support of that kind of work. And frankly, if you're not sure what to do, finding activists and causes and donating money always helps. If you're not sure what to do saying, I, I don't know what to do, but I bet you could do something with this $1,000, you know? And for that money, I can set up a polyamorous triad with all of the legal paperwork that they need. You know, it can make be really efficient with what we do. So donating to nonprofits that you support, volunteering with groups that you support and figuring out something that's connected to your issues in your own community. So for example, I'm here in the New York City polyamorous community supporting the low-income members of our community and giving them the legal stability that will help them with whatever comes next. That's one way to tap in if that's relevant to you, but figuring out whatever is a cause and then getting a bit more engaged, even if it's, I, I donate to this nonprofit and I share their information on social media and I read what they say that I should be doing in terms of calling my senators. That's something, that's a start. And there's lots and lots of people like me in every local area that you can get engaged with. Mm -hmm. And it's so important that we do that because um, like you said, this is just the beginning and it rolls downhill really fast. It can roll downhill really fast. Yeah. So what legal steps can or should queer married folks take to protect our rights in the case that marriage is dissolved in the eyes of the U.S. government? I think it's really important, first off, to recognize the tremendous divide that we have in our country 
and that there are some places where there are tremendous rollbacks on LGBTQ rights. And that sometimes you may want to think about whether you are, if you're in a red state or if you're in a particularly conservative area, thinking about, do I want to stay? If I, if you have the privilege to leave, I think that's a really valid decision. We need people to be voting in Texas. We need people to be voting in Florida, but I would not live as a person with a uterus or a queer person in Texas or Florida right now. I would get out. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I would. Um, Because you're in a place where they are, specifically and successfully banning a lot of your rights and privileges um, in terms of reproductive freedom and in terms of LGBTQ rights, your ability to advocate for your trans kid, drag queen story hour, it starts there and it may end up with your marriage next Mm. or your ability to be fired from your job for being LGBTQ. So if I was in a red state as a queer person, I would think about leaving. That just gave me goosebumps. I literally feel like I just heard what you said across my body. Yeah, it, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. And then for me here in New York, honestly, I wasn't going to buy a house um, in this area in the U.S. until I saw what happened with the Senate and whether Trump's election deniers were, were getting voted in. And still might even wait till the 2024 presidential election before I buy a house, mm-hmm. because otherwise I might move to Berlin or Portugal. Mm-hmm. Honestly, like uh, that's where I'm at. Uh, you know, sure. seeing this from a world perspective and the way things could turn really quickly, just being aware if many people, most of us don't have the financial privilege to pick up and move. But if you have the financial privilege to pick up and move, just be conscious about where you are. Mm -hmm. And and if you are choosing to, if you have the choice, whether you want to choose to be living in a place that doesn't respect your civil rights. Mm -hmm. And also for those that feel like they're up for staying and fighting, we also need progressive voters in those places. And that's one of the reasons these places are voting the way they are, because a lot of the queer people that have the privilege to leave left. A lot of the progressive people with graduate degrees left because they didn't want to live in a place that was going in that direction. And so we're seeing this population drain. We need people to stay if they feel strong enough for it. But I think it's important to weigh that as a personal choice if you have that privilege. So let's talk about polyamorous folks and non-married couples, right? What are the legal steps can or should non-married couples, polyamorous partners and or queer parents take to protect their rights? Getting all of your legal paperwork in order is actually really powerful. It's not something that sounds sexy and exciting to talk about doing your will or your advanced medical directives or making financial agreements with your partners. But that's really something that can be stabilizing. And I've been doing this work long enough to have been doing it before we had same-sex marriage in New York State. And working with people to creatively figure out, okay, we're not you know, two gay men, for example, not legally married, but how could we do a will for them that makes it clear and, and minimizes any kind of taxes they're going to have to pay at death? How could we creatively structure their finances together? Maybe they have joint accounts so that there's not some big transfer happening. You know, at the time of death, it's going to cause a tremendous tax hit. How do we make sure we, your gay partner can stay in your apartment after you leave, you know, if you're not legally married? Doing all of that kind of brainstorming and creative work to try to keep people legally connected is tremendously helpful in a time where you're not necessarily relying just on marriage or what marriage means. That's very helpful. I think it's also in this time of, everybody wanting stability, particularly with both the political climate and what happened with COVID, more and more people are realizing that they want to feel that safety and stability as much as they can with their family members. And so with that, I'm helping people, for example, who are polyamorous or who are doing family in any kind of other different way, platonic co-parents or people who are co-housing and living together collectively, 
actually doing agreements about how you're structuring your finances, having conversations about how if one person isn't working and is staying home to care for children or the household, how are they getting financially provided for if the situation breaks apart or we all need to separate? How are we making sure that person has financial security? Staying connected, making sure people all have retirement savings, having check-ins about what's our financial situation? How are we entwined? What are our assumptions? Because I think also when people are going off-road and creating family in their own way, we don't have a script for what that looks like. And I'm really passionate about helping people to figure out, well, how do we want to share finances? How do we want to structure our lives together? How do we want to set this up? Do you want to have children? Do you not want to have children? Do you want to be financially interdependent or do you want to stay more independent? Those are all worthy conversations and people like me relish having them with clients. And I think that having kind of legal documents in place that clarify your parental status and make sure that that's as clear as possible, especially if you're a non-biological parent, getting your protections in place to keep you legally connected to your kid, keeping you legally connected to your partners as much as possible, making sure that everyone's financially provided for. Advanced medical directives, make sure you could all visit each other in the hospital and be together with each other. Those are the kinds of things in times of crisis that help people feel safe as much as possible and will also help regardless of whether marriages are valid in the U.S. or not. You know, it's kind of interesting, right? The marriage takes care of all of those things in one foul swoop, the marriage contract. And then when you break it apart and try to do it individually, it sounds so unromantic. And I think what we've done with marriage that we've made a legal document romanticized and everyone's like, yay, let's get married. They don't quite understand the extent of support and privilege it comes with. And it just feels like it's about the wedding and the white, the white wedding dress. And then only when you break it apart and say, okay, how can we do this without the, the romantic part of it all? It sounds calculated and so, so dry, but it just shows how essential it is and how much of a privilege marriage is. It's not about the white wedding. It's about all these things that affords you to have in the world. And I think sometimes people aren't willing to separate the romance from the, the practical legal side of things and, and aren't necessarily willing to sort of go through the steps that you, you've described. But we really have to have to really think about that. And I think it goes back to what you're saying about like, it's wrapped in Christian values or, or religious values, right? We've got to be able to separate that. And if, if, that's, if that's really important to you, if the spirituality, if the religious part of it is really important to you, by all means, celebrate that. But let's not ignore that there is a much, like it is a practical and legal part to that, that there needs to be allowed for everybody. Absolutely. I think that marriage as it exists in the US is dangerous because it conflates this romantic idea of a sacrament and also of this spiritual moment, this incredibly romantic time, we get distracted by throwing this giant party. And then it's actually like you've signed on to a template contract with the government. Mm -hmm. You're in a way, an unholy three-way with the government (laughs) in which you've signed on to just what the standard marriage laws are, which are over a thousand different rights and responsibilities to each other. But most people don't even read like they would a cell phone contract. And so you have no idea what you're signing on for. And I think that is actually a risk for people. And one reason why I prefer, I think we're all safer when we have marriage or domestic partnership as options when you go to city hall and then just taking a moment to say, oh, what's the difference? And realizing, oh, marriage means we become a social welfare state of two and we pool all of our money together. And so if one of you gets into $1,000 worth of uh, debt or $100,000 worth of debt, you share that even if you had nothing to do with that debt, even if you know your spouse goes off and gets a bunch of credit card debt or goes to rehab, that $100,000 bill, you split that so that the government doesn't have to. Or if one of you does it tremendously well, buys a big house or does very well professionally, your spouse gets to share that income. That's a, an incredibly messy situation that is the end of many romantic relationships. 
That's what I do also as a divorce lawyer is help people figure out those kinds of messes that they didn't necessarily intend or that don't necessarily feel fair. And so it's just important for people to know what they're signing on to. And I think that marriages will be stronger when we do. Marriages will be stronger if we have another domestic partnership kind of option that says you're legally connected and you're each other's legal partners and you can share health insurance, but you're not sharing all of your finances unless you make a separate contract about it. It's actually good to have that choice and make that a bit more of a conscious choice for people. Because I had so many situations with clients right after same-sex marriage passed in New York, and it was so exciting. And then it would be like a surgeon is marrying an out-of-work actor because they're in love. And then they're like, oh, oh, wait, what? This is going to impact our taxes. This is going to mean that we're supposed to support each other. You have a whole credit card situation. I didn't necessarily want to like become your daddy and like help you fix your credit card situation. That's not hot, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it should be more of a choice. People realize they're making that you're going to become financially entangled and have to sort of take responsibility for each other's financial maturity in a way that is not necessarily sexy or romantic Mm -hmm. or what you intended to do. And so I had many situations of people who are very well-educated people, but had no idea that that's what they were signing on to when they were like, yay, we're going to get married on Pride Weekend. And so I think it's important that we recognize that and recognize that there are other kinds of choices and maybe let people have that romantic piece with marriage, but make the the practical legal documents as well. And I try to add maybe with my own enthusiasm about how beautiful these conversations are, a bit of the romance back into making these agreements that it's a really sacred thing that I get to have an Mm -hmm. honor to be part of midwifing with people. Mm -hmm. And just recently met with a triad who came into New York City to do their legal documents with me a few weeks after they'd had a big triad commitment ceremony wedding and doing the the pieces with me, like stamping the paperwork and having a really nice moment where we went to the roof and took a deep breath together. And it, it does feel like it's really sacred and was really meaningful for them. And I feel really honored to be part of that. And I think we can also bring the romance back into making intentional agreements and having mm-hmm. intentional conversations. Beautiful. I have a quick question for that. Just the devil's advocate, or just to explore it. Do you think though the marriage protects the woman and the women needs women need that protection? I think that marriage is a really effective institution for making sure that perhaps a dependent parent, often a mother, if they're not working or they're underemployed, that they are provided for. So even really radical progressive couples will sometimes come to me and say, what should we do to structure our relationship? And I'll say, okay, well, if she's going to be staying home with children for several years and take a major career hit, that's when marriage makes sense maybe because he's putting all this money into his retirement account. That retirement account money will get split and it's half Mm -hmm. hers when you get divorced. So if you're going to be a dependent stay-at-home parent, for example, or just a financial dependent in whatever way, maybe you're home taking care of the household, maybe you're supporting your partner's career, then it makes sense. No matter what your gender is, it often does help women um, and mothers. But then I've seen many situations where it's important also for men to recognize that maybe they might need that kind of protection, especially if they're going to be in a situation of caretaking or being a dependent. So if you're sacrificing a lot for your partner's career, even if it's just every two years we have to move for my partner's career, so I don't ever really have a chance to fully dig in and make as much money as I would and I'm making a career sacrifice... That's a situation in which maybe then it's appropriate for you to be splitting their earnings with them if you get separated Mm -hmm. um, because you've basically signed on to be in mutual support of each other's careers. So that's a situation in which sometimes I say, you know what, actually getting married might make sense for you. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's useful to recognize as a legal tool. And I think it's useful to, to actually recognize what it means and when you can use it as a legal tool and when it's not the right legal tool for you. 
I've also done many situations in which there are polyamorous triads and they reconfigure their marriage based on a need for health insurance or immigration status. So for example, long-term happily married couple, gay couple had a boyfriend and boyfriend did not have a green card and was potentially going to go back to a country where being gay is criminalized. It was not going to be safe for him. We explored all the other employment options. He tried with the other kinds of immigration options. And then finally, a year later, they said, you know what, this is getting dangerous for him and we love him. And we're now in this, you know, multi-year committed relationship as a triad. We're going to get amicably divorced, long-term married Mm -hmm. couple. Mm -hmm. And then one of us is going to marry him so that he can get a green card based on marriage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's fully legal. I've Mm -hmm. also had multiple cases like that where we're not lying to the immigration officials when we're doing the interview. There's this traditional idea that you need to sort of, a lot of people have done sham marriages. This is actually a real marriage. It's just complicated and New York style. And we just explain it and um, explain that they're in a legitimate relationship and also still in a relationship with this person. And yes, I did just get divorced from this guy that we still live with. And now I'm married to this person, but we have a legitimate relationship and that's valid. You're allowed to use marriage that way. And so While legal, it may not sound romantic, but marriage is a powerful legal tool that you can share with somebody if you need to. I've also seen situations in which it's four people together and maybe two of them who are married to each other both have really good health insurance and then the other couple don't. And it's going to cost the whole quad a lot of money to buy them health insurance or the two people who are who don't have health insurance, maybe the person without health insurance is going to be the one having a baby or has a serious health issue. And it's like, you know what, we're not going to navigate one of our partners having MS without the good health insurance. We're not going to navigate our partner doing IVF without the good health insurance. And we're, we don't need this legal contract to demonstrate our love. We could legally disentangle marriage. And then one of us, and we can remarry in a different configuration in a triad or quad to utilize that as a tool. And then sometimes do something that's affirming, like creating a commitment ceremony. That's okay. We're disentangling this. We're recreating over here. But regardless of that structure, let's do a beautiful ritual about the three of us getting reconnected. You know, let's honor the wedding rings that you've had together and that we all share them now or that you still have them or, you know, that we're going to put them in a special box, but we're going to acknowledge where you've been. You're going to acknowledge those relationships and create our own radical rituals to celebrate that relationship, even as we use marriage in a more strategic way. So do you have any legal advice for co-parents who are not biological parents? Absolutely. I think it's incredibly important that any non-biological parents do everything they can to stay connected to their children. So first... If it's a scenario of, for example, a female same-sex couple is a very common example in my world where maybe there's a birth mom who's going to be the bio mom and then partner is not biologically connected. That's often a female same-sex couple, but it could be a partner who is trans. It could be a man who's not able to have children, whatever other reason, a non-biologically connected partner that's going to live from the time of birth as a parent. In that situation in New York state, you can now do what's called a judgment of parentage. We just passed this with the Child Parent Security Act in 2020. And that's a legal document that just clarifies we had a sperm donor. We have to document where the sperm came from. So it has to be sort of that traditional model of we we had a known sperm donor with a a legal agreement or went to a sperm bank. This is the other mom who's an equal mom. And we're just clarifying that. Um, And that is going to be stronger than just being on the birth certificate. If you're married in New York state or many blue states in the U.S., 
whoever's married to mom is allowed to be on the birth certificate. This actually comes from a really old fashioned principle called the presumption of parentage. And so if me and my white husband go to the hospital and I have a Chinese baby, everyone's just like, no, 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 no. We're not thinking about it. The one you're married to is responsible for t- paying for this baby. It all comes down to the state not wanting to pay, right? They're like, you're, you're married. I don't know. You know, you had a baby that's like either of you, but okay. Um, it comes from that kind of principle. And, but then oddly, female same-sex couples are able to benefit from that, but that's only valid in New York state. And it doesn't fully clarify where you got the sperm from and that there's not some other person out there. So the birth certificate is not enough. People need to realize the birth certificate's not enough just to guarantee their parentage. Mm. So doing a judgment of parentage is really helpful in other States that might be a second parent adoption where you clarify that bio mom is staying the parent, but the second parent does an adoption to clarify that can be a long process. It can take over a year. In some places you have to get fingerprinting and a home study from a social worker. It's a hassle, but it's worth it. Mm -hmm. And also at chosen family law center in New York state, we will do your judgment of parentage for free. If you're a low income person and and a non-bio parent. So contact us and we'll help with that because it's incredibly important that people get that done for their safety because that won't count. The birth certificate won't make, won't make a difference. I'm so glad you tied to that because that's exactly what I wanted to say, that all this legal stuff sounds great, but it also is a privilege, right? It costs a lot of money to get that stuff in in order. And what you're doing with the Chosen Family Law Center is so incredible. Now that I really wrap my head around what it takes, and then first of all, I'm glad there are options, and that speaks to sort of the US for, for better or worse, um, at the same time that it just requires privilege and resources to be able to do that on your own. And the work that you're doing with the Chosen um, Family Law Center allows people their human rights and and right to love and to parent and um to do all that stuff so that's really important so i just want to thank you for that that's like just so incredibly important thank you i appreciate that and i started the chosen family law center because i saw that there was a real need for these services and i started my boutique law firm serving paying clients in 2007 in new york and partly i started that because i saw that there weren't other people who were supporting polyamorous families and supporting the kinds of configurations of LGBTQ families that were in my own personal community as a polyamorous queer person. And people would ask me, you know, who do I go to if my ex is threatening to take my kids away because I'm polyamorous in a child custody case. And I looked around and there was no one doing that. And I said, well, I'm a family lawyer and I'm personally polyamorous and queer. I could do that. And who do I go to, to get my help as a female same-sex couple to get all the documents in order. And at the time it was really complicated. It was, how do we figure out whether the Vermont civil union is going to be valid here to share health insurance with my partner? And who do you go to to navigate that? There were very, very few people doing that at all. So basically I started my own law firm in 2007 to do that kind of work and then expanded it with other attorneys working for me. But still during that whole time, you know, if there was a solid decade of major LGBTQ organizations If you called and said, I have a polyamory issue, they would all just refer to me. I don't have any nonprofit funding. I'm just one person working on my own with a few employees. And so I had to turn away a tremendous number of people who were calling and saying, you know, how do we set up our polyamorous family? Or if they couldn't afford to pay me, then I I couldn't help them. And I'm doing this as a mission-driven business, not just as a business. And I wanted to be able to serve my community. And so that's where Chosen Family Law Center came in so that we can afford to give people that kind of support by getting nonprofit funding and support and donations. That's fantastic. So appreciative of the work. And uh, like I said, I, I, my wife and I were, were clients in your uh, law and mediation center. And so, you know, really appreciated that that was something that was an option. Thank you. 
wondering if we can spend our last few minutes just getting to know you a little better before we leave this conversation. And so we have four questions that we'd love to ask you um, just to get to know you a little bit more. The first of which is, what is one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self about love, sex, or relationships? I think that I would give myself the advice that it's possible to really manifest the life of your dreams and the relationships of your dreams through self-awareness and communication. I think my advice for my younger self would be to feel bravery to leap into that journey. And my younger self would have been delighted with the life I've created now as a polyamorous person in a long-term relationship with a child and other partners. Yay, beautiful. Um, okay, let's see if we can get a little saucy. Uh, what is one romantic or sexual adventure on your bucket list? I have been in beautiful polyamorous quads before and polyamorous triads before. And I'm now in a phase in my life in which I have become a parent and lived internationally for a while. And I feel like I would be really excited for this next version in my life of being in a triad again. And I think that I'd be really interested in that um, kind of adventure. And I look forward to being in, even though I have a really grounded nesting partner, I look forward to adventuring in other kinds of relationship configurations in future and continuing to build poly family for myself. I'm open to still like living internationally again. I'm open to having another nesting partner. I'm open to um, that kind of fluidity. And I'm excited about that. Yes, to everything that you've just said. Yes. <laughs> we concur. You're here. I want that too. Yeah. Uh, moms deserve to fall in love too. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it seems like a, an, an obvious question, but how is it that you challenge the status quo? I challenge the status quo by having really designed and created my own career and my own personal life in a way that works for me. And I'm really grateful for experiences like Burning Man and my polyamorous community that helped me sort of step off the hamster wheel. Beautiful. Okay. So uh, we are a curious bunch around here and we are curious about what you're curious about lately. I am, this is a really wonky answer, but I am a geek about history Mm -hmm. and I'm a geek about political movements Um, And thinking about what's happened historically and learning and continuing to develop my knowledge about what has happened in the rise and fall of authoritarianism, what we can learn from other countries in that experience, what we can learn from the tremendous success of the same-sex marriage movement, and how we can carry that for other movements. Because I am really interested in being a positive change agent in the U.S. I moved back to the U.S. to try to fight for my country because we are in a desperate situation politically. And I want to be curious and always learning and not stuck in my ways or think that I have all the answers about how we do that. Feeling like I'm, I'm curious about expanding my perspective always beyond what's happening in the US and beyond what's happening in my own experience so that I can stay nimble and stay in a place of growth always. Beautiful. Fantastic. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you, Diana. Thank you, Diana. Thanks for all the information you shared with us. Um, it's one of those episodes I think we are we're gonna listen over and over again. I think it's gonna take a few listens. There's just so much information, such precious, important information. And we also, you know, in our show notes, we'll give you all the links and everything else for people who want to to support you and and find out more about the work. Just thank you for the work that you do. 
Thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful conversation. If you want to learn more about Diana Adams and their work, visit dianaadamslaw.net and chosenfamilylawcenter.org or visit Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at dianaadamsesq. If you want to weigh in on this topic, share additional resources, or just want to connect with other Foxy listeners, head to Facebook and join our Facebook group at We Are Curious Foxes. If you find our episodes interesting, helpful, or even funny, please share our podcast with a friend. Quickly rate the show, leave a comment, and subscribe to Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or Stitcher. A few seconds of your time will have a big impact for us. Our beautifully colorful website is filled with reading lists, blog posts, and past episodes that can help you indulge your curiosity around love, sex, and relationships. Visit us at wearecuriousfoxes.com. To support the show, join us on Patreon at We Are Curious Foxes, where you can find mini episodes, podcast extras that couldn't make it to the show, and over 50 videos from educator-led workshops, including the one facilitated by Diane Adams. Go to Patreon at We Are Curious Foxes. And finally, let us know that you're listening by sharing a comment, story, or a question. You can email us or send us a voice memo to listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com or you can record a question for the show by calling us at 646-450-9079. This episode is produced by Effie Blue and Jacqueline Misla with help from Yamur Arkishi. Our editor is Nina Pollock, who protects our right to be awesome on every episode. Our intro music is composed by Dev Saha. We are so grateful for their work and we're grateful to you for listening. As always, stay curious, friends. I feel like there's tongue twisters in every episode. I just, because I can't say words. Catch up. Catch us up. on. Why can't I say words? I'm going to do it. It's going to happen. Because you're starting to say numbers. I know. That's true. On June 24th, 2022, the U.S. Supreme Government overturned Roe v. Wade, which affirmed the... Sorry, you said Supreme Government. Oh, it does feel That's like that. That's what it feels like. <laughs> <laughs> the overlords told us the, that. Yes. <laughs> because this is the truth. <laughs> My buddy knows the truth. We did it. Banked another episode. Curious Fox Podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. 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 Stay curious.